let's kick it off close to the top of the hour, which is something we rarely do. So we're making progress. So look, many of you that have listened into single stock spaces are, are, are quite plugged in uh, to the opportunity set in, in energy and resources. But in the same way that you can't discuss NASDAQ without having a view on FANG, uh, I think if you're going to talk about resources, you just have to have a strong view on the Glencores and Valets and BHPs and, and Rio of the world. Uh, and this is a point that, that Koala made. And we really couldn't have anybody better than him uh, you know, to discuss the investment opportunity in Glencore and what it means really for the rest of the sector. For those of you who don't know, although I suspect most of you do, uh, Koala is the most respected Twitter account dedicated to the resources space. Uh, his observations are always equal part informative, thoughtful, and generally pretty entertaining as well. And so he's the great follow if you, if you don't already follow him. Um, and he's been by far the number one requested guest on single stock spaces. So super pumped to have him today to discuss Glencore. I'll kick it off how I always like to kick it off, which is just by turning the mic over uh, over to Koala. I'd love to hear about kind of your personal investing lens. What's your style? What's your research approach? What's your process? Uh, are you looking long and short? Really, I'd like you to take it, uh, you know, in whatever direction you think most makes them just to give everybody your personal context before we dig into really the macro and then Glencore. Of course. So I think the best way to describe my process and how I look at investing is to say that private equity would consider me a trader, but the fast money multi-manager hedge funds would consider me a long-term investor. There's that um, middle ground uh, where I sort of sit, and I think you see that in um, my comments and what I focus on. Um, it's not what stocks can outperform this week, but over a reasonable time horizon, hold anywhere from three months, but probably more sweet spot, six to 18 months. Um, what are really compelling opportunities? Um, and so that's a, that's kind of a dead zone in resources, I would say, to be perfectly honest. Um, I would say companies would describe me as the investor who asks different questions than my peers. Um, but broadly speaking, from a professional lens, look for great risk rewards, cross-asset within natural resources. And that can include stuff on the private side. Um, and it also includes, when I say cross-asset, commodity futures, some credit. It really just, where can we find a really compelling opportunity? Um, and from a PA perspective, I go basically anywhere. Juniors, privates, pure plays, all the way up to the topic of today, which is a diversified mining house like Glencore. And Koala, feel free to share as many or as little detail as, as you see fit, but I'd love to hear about, you know, maybe one of your best one or two trades over your career. What were the characteristics that made the trade great? Um, and I'll let you take it from there. Look, 
think from a professional perspective, um, going long forward to skew in the second half of 18 uh, really stands out to me. Um, and that was a trade where with Fabio um, as the CEO of Vale and Vale doing Brazilian uh, land fine strategy, we were starting to really, for the first time, see in a way that the public markets noticed a quality spread happened between 65, 62, and 58 iron ore. And it kept getting wider and wider to the point that there was real narrative around Fortescue that this finally was going to happen, that the Rio and BHP skepticism of Twiggy, that he was just staking dirt that was worthless, was finally coming to pass. Um, but we went and did the work, and you started to realize that you needed Fortescue's tons to balance the market, and that there really was a floor um, where Fortescue would pull back production, which would support the IMR price, and would incentivize 58 higher. We also, um, Twiggy, I believe it was in uh, late 17, early 18, but um, he let slip at one point um, on like a conference call or in a speech that Force was working on a way to upgrade their product. At, at the time, they had two main products, a 58 uh, blend and a 56 and a half super special fines. Um, and basically what happened is there was a site visit in 28, late 18, where they announced they were doing West Pilbara fines, which was a 60 and a half or six, yeah, 60 and a half product. Um, and that basically would not affect their cost structure because Illawana was coming in and it was not going to affect their mine life or their tonnage. And this was finally uh, kind of the self-help or innovative breakthrough. Um, and it took a little while for the market to catch on to that. But at the time, we were able to buy Fortescue. I mean, it was, it was like a US $4 stock at the time. Um, Aussie five, and I, don't know, I think we were getting, if memory serves me correct, like a 15, 20% free cash flow yield, and we were assuming 40, 45 for their existing portfolio AS, uh, CFR realization. And in a world like that, I mean, I don't know, I don't know, we'd have to really get ugly uh, for us to lose money on that on a 12 to 24 month basis. Iron ore tightened up. People started to understand the West Pilbara fines. Took a few weeks. Um, and then for some very tragic reasons, iron ore really got interesting in 2019. Um, but I mean, look, US4, Aussie 5 to, I mean, where did it peak at? Aussie 25, and you probably got five Aussie dividends along the way. Obviously, wasn't there for a whole bit, but in terms of a big liquid name, um, differentiation, um, that one really stands out to me. That's really helpful. Thank you. So, Koala, I think that's a good place to transition. Uh, and I love that you have this intermediate term lens of call it six to 18 months. Uh, because a lot, you know, a lot of listeners on this call are just fascinated by the opportunity set that is presenting itself in roughly that time frame. Uh, and so, maybe before we start to dive into Glencore, just talk about the broader context 
uh, how you view the opportunity set that is out there today. Uh, and, and if you want to, you know, compare and contrast it, uh, you know, to the past, that, that's fine. But if you want it to be only a full, you know, a forward-looking commentary, I'll let you take it in whatever direction you think makes sense. So I think first from the supply perspective, you've done a few spaces on coal. So I think everyone understands that ESG is causing some capital issues or scarcity of capital in some commodities. But I think we have to look to the history of the past. And if you look at the big miners, in the first half of the 2010s, they were spending 70 to 100 billion a year of CapEx. Now you gotta back out BHP's petroleum spend in there, but small, small in the grand scheme of it all. Um, and now their CapEx are fractions of what it was. Um, they overbuilt, they used leverage. Um, and in that moment, you had in basically 2014, 2015, 2016, China had a slowdown. And I'll never forget, uh, a Sunday night in August of 2015 when China shocked the value of the yuan. Um, and it always just stood out to me for one simple reason. China was basically admitting that, at least in some sense, because this wasn't a controlled devaluation, um, that things might not be as good as the Western markets thought they were at the time, and that really shook people. And then you had steel production decline sequentially in that second half, 15, first half, 16 period, first time since the global financial crisis. Balance sheet's incredibly levered. Everyone was in the middle of finishing growth capex, and it was just a complete mess. And after that, uh, investors who went through that demanded capital discipline. And you hear it every year. You hear China's peak steel, China peak this, property's a problem, uh, copper really is a construction and infrastructure, and China doesn't need more cities. Um, and yet, you actually look at it, and you continue to see growth and incremental demand. Uh, but at the same time, the capital isn't there. And the multiples on these companies have completely degraded. So they're now sitting there saying, okay, we're maintaining our production levels. We're maintaining our profitability. But why would I go do what my predecessors did in the CEO chair and buy some junior that we didn't discover, that we didn't diligence, that we haven't built the relationships with the local communities, or that we didn't build if it's a producing operation, when I can buy my own stock back at discounts to now and uh, just focus on improving my own business and reducing leverage for the next down cycle. So you've had a massive derating in the space, but you've also had massive religion on the supply side. Uh, on the demand side, um, despite all the people who got it right in 2015, China has progressively continued to grow. And now we have the kicker of what I'm going to call this clean air decarbonization, electrification, that the whole world seems to have decided um, we want to have happen. And someone really smart uh, and really successful once said to me, don't think of it as climate change. Think of it this way. In every major city, 
in every developed, developing or emerging or frontier uh, country, the government and the people want clean air. Clean air for the urbanized elite populations means healthier people, better educated kids, better health outcomes, and more prosperity. So you have all of these tailwinds, and you have the fact that despite what everyone says, you actually go look at history and we tended to consume more steel, more copper. Yeah, China accelerated growth, but there's still a lot of places in the world that don't have a Western standard of living. And I think one thing I learned during the pandemic was half of Peru doesn't have refrigeration. So they have to go to the market every day or two on, and we recall they had a very unfortunate uh, COVID wave in 2020. I mean, those are the sorts of things where basic, basic improvements that from our perspective in the West can make major leaps for huge populations in the world. And case in point, I'll never forget when I went to the Congo, a life-changing trip for me, um, seeing uh, locals only a few miles outside Kowizi, um wheeling charcoal on bikes with flat tires into the city. And just thinking to myself that there is a huge opportunity here for someone to just take a bunch of city bikes and some bike pumps and just completely, completely transform these people's uh, day-to-day life and standard of living. I mean, it, it's until you actually go see it, and most people in the West don't get the opportunity to do so, in a lot of places in the world, there are great leaps forward that can be had with just the aluminum that goes into a bike or the rubber that goes into a tire on a bike. And that's always stood out to me. So to summarize it, you have no one investing in this space. Everyone's falling in love with SaaS. And everyone thinks that everything's virtual, going to be digital, and we don't need real infrastructure, real economy. And that's when you get great cycles. That makes a ton of sense. And so I'm, I'm ready to transition to Glencore. So yeah, I think I think thank you for the the overview and the context. Um, let's talk about Glencore. Uh, a lot of different ways we could structure this. Really, what I want to what I want to understand is, you know, you just laid out a really attractive investing context, um, and and like you've said in the past, you can't understand this investment opportunity if you don't understand the majors. Um, so let's put Glencore. Uh, you know, let's put Glencore into with, within that context. Talk about why it's attractive. Um, you know, before we start really diving into the various segments, uh, let's just talk a little bit about about the company and its context within this investment thesis. Absolutely. So, let me just pull up one of the slides so I have the numbers in front of me. So, what we have here. So I'm just going to do regular voice. Let's save everyone some misery. 
better? <laughs> perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> so what we have here is a company that is one of the biggest producers of copper in the world doing 1.1 to 1.2 million tons, which in a 25 million ton markets call it 5%. And um, you have a company that's doing to do 50, 50 tons of cobalt, which is, you know, for someone who once bought and sold some cobalt, I should remember how big the market is. What's, I think it's, it's like 20 plus percent. Um, you have 1.1 to 1.2 million tons of zinc, which is an 11 million ton market. So percentages of the zinc market, they market probably another 10% on top of that. You got to call it 100 KT of nickel, maybe 130 if Coniambo uh, gets its act together in a 2 million ton market. And then you have Met Plus Thermal uh, capacity to do way more than 120 million tons of coal, but call it 120 million tons uh, going forward. Um, and there's a bunch of byproducts in there as well. Um, but you have a major producer of basically every commodity we think about uh, that goes into the industrial economy with the exception of iron ore. And on top of it, we have a marketing business that is Traffy's, I recall, a little bigger than Glencore in copper, but one of the biggest zinc traders, biggest cobalt trader, and probably the biggest coal trader, but and various other commodities too, including uh, ferroalloys, vanadium, penoxide, which some of us who have seen heard about vanadium redox batteries might notice as a potential green metal. So we have a massive trading and marketing and logistics business uh, layered on top of a gigantic industrial business. And the origins of this business go back to um, Mark Rich, who formed Mark Rich and Co. Uh, and he was bought out by his partners in the 90s, uh, and they renamed the company Glencore. Um, along the way, um, the CEO, Ivan Glazenberg, supported uh, investments in industrial businesses, including uh, a company called Extrata uh, that was public, but Glencore owned a third of it while Glencore remained private, which built several copper and coal mines. And after Glencore went public in, uh, if memory serves me correct, it was 11 or 12. Um, a couple years later, um, Glencore and Extrata merged um, to create this company. So that's the back history of Glencore. Um, I mean, it's a top five copper producer in the world. Everyone wants to talk about the coal, but for base metals, touches everything. <laughs> Yeah, and so th there's this this topic from their investor presentation. Uh, you know, look, you just mentioned they're really low on the cost curve across many of their different commodities, which you know has really means something for downside protection. Um, but then, can you also touch on the ESG slide uh, from their investor presentation, which I think is a pretty crucial point. Uh, you know, their view about how ESG changes these marginal cost curves and what that means for the the company. Certainly, so. 
if anyone else has it open, it's slide 16 of the capital markets day. Um, and I think this is a, this is something that's never really talked about as much, but it's very important. Um, if you're a commodity producer, you want a steep cost curve because econ 101, uh, at least on paper, the marginal cost meets marginal demand sets the price. Um, so if you're a first, second quartile, you want the fourth quartile to be much more expensive than you are. Um, and what um, Glencore is alluding to on this is that the carbon, if we actually start pricing carbon into our materials, it's going to affect um, their biggest commodities in some very interesting ways. Um, and they flag it on here, but I mean, I think the most obvious one to flag, given we think about nickel going into batteries is, and I believe it's even, they flag it on here. It's, uh, the coal fired, uh, power behind nickel out of Indonesia. If you price that carbon, you end up in a much higher cost position for those Tons, which right now you would argue are pretty low on the cost curve. That might not be the case. Uh, if we start pricing carbon effectively and consumers and governments decide that you have to carry the scope three kind of through at the consumer price point. And that would be great. That would be absolutely fantastic for nickel sulfide producers like Glencore in Canada who won't be, who don't have that issue. And so what this is kind of alluding to, it's very important, is we're going to see, and you've heard people talk about green premium for aluminum on the price, but we could just as well see, if you translate down to the cost curve, so much more profit potential um, for those that are advantageously positioned. And I know the company, they're trying to lead the horse to water here, but they're not necessarily forcing it to drink. But is there some point in the next, you know, within your investing horizon, so in that, call it six to 18 month view, where maybe it's Glencore, maybe it's others, actually start to flip the narrative as opposed to, you know, right now it feels like the narrative, you know, if management teams are getting pounded on ESG, it's, hey, we will survive as opposed to we will thrive. Is there any chance that that narrative shift is coming in your investment horizon? I think you're already seeing it. Um, I think you're hearing, you saw Rio talk about decarbonizing the Pilbara and decarbonizing their Australian aluminum smelters. You see talk of um, the green aluminum premium. You hear conversations about lower emissions coming from higher grade iron ore or Vale talking about briquettes. You're starting to see the breadcrumbs put in place, but investors are so battle scarred that they just see CapEx cost. Um, they see a bet on a carbon price coming into place, whereas the industry is trying to be uh, proactive and get in front of it. So I think you're actually seeing that already. You're seeing people point out um, their advantages, their positions. 
And so let's talk about the company's coal positioning within that context. Um, you know, there, there's several several of the DMs that I received in the, in the lead up to this conversation was, look, you know, this this company they've got to do something to get rid of coal, or they've you know they've got to spin the asset that sort of thing, which to me is really opposed to what management is, has publicly stated they're going to do here. They understand that, um, you know, they can make the commitments they need to make. Uh, and run this business for cash. So just talk about that context of the coal segment, um, you know, and, and whether that creates some sort of kind of cognitive dissonance with with a certain, I don't know, maybe long only shareholder base. Let's, let's talk about that issue. I think this has been a, this has been a conversation since Rio uh, divested coal, mostly to Glencore uh, in 1617. Um, and Glencore's always made the point, and I think that the market is coming around to this way of thinking, which is um, just because a public Western company sells does not mean the coal stays in the ground. And you'd rather have a tier one uh, world-class operator who's beholden to Western shareholders and Western standards of operating, running these mines, um, who also, when the time is right, will choose to keep coal in the ground. And no one is better uh, at looking at a commodity market and saying, oh, wait, if I leave 5% of my guidance in the ground, I'll make it up on price. We've seen Glencore do this multiple times. Interesting. <laughs> so I, I think that, that this narrative has already started to form um, around the fact that, yeah, some folks can't touch it uh, for the coal, but with Newcastle at 200, it's making a ton of money. And if Newcastle settles out at 100 while copper stays above 450, 440 a pound, I mean, coal is going to be a small part, smaller part of, call it the EBITDA here. Um, and in terms of the spin, I mean, folks want to look at Tungela and say, look, people puked it on day one and two, and then people came and bought it. I mean, we're talking about totally magnitudes of different profitability and tonnage and size. What is the point of spinning a company that's going to be orphaned and then so people like is there really billions of capital for a coal pure play in western public markets um i i'm not sure there is but i think within glencore who let's be honest here buying hale creek buying uh coal and allied hunter valley in partnership with yan coal was probably one of the best M&A sets of M&A transactions for value creation of the last five years after a decade where almost any buy-side M&A was value destructive. And then we got Sarah Hone, where BHP and Anglo have divested to Glencore, effective beginning of 21, going to close sometime first half this year, and Glencore net nets not going to have to write a check. I mean, they've proven 
to be great capital allocators to this space. And at the same time, you can look back, they used to produce tens of millions of tons more coal. They're down to 120. And they've guided towards a managed decline through 2050. Uh, as I look at it, if you are an ESG investor, you want best in class operators as custody in custody of these assets. Is it fair to say that that managed that manage decline uh, is sort of manifest destiny and that there's no way uh, there's no way that 120 goes to 140 to take advantage of a couple years of Newcastle craziness? How would I put this? The only way I see Glencore increasing coal production by five to 10 or 15 million tons per year would be if, and I mean, they have the, I believe Sarah Hone pro forma guidance is in this. And Sarah Hone is what? Uh, let me just check my model here. Let's see. I just want to get these numbers precisely right. Sorry about that. So Sarah Hone is going to do seven and a half million tons this year attributable to Glencore. And they do a third. So that's 22 million tons. So they're net net acquiring uh, 14 million tons. Just eyeballing this, I'm pretty sure they do this on an attributable basis. Um, and yet their guidance is to go up to is to go up to 120. So you've added in Sarah Hone, but beyond that, unless it's through external M&A, like if they got their hands on a massive coking coal portfolio that's already producing, I don't see them growing production organically. The only way I could see that possibly happening is if the whole world came to Glencore and said, we really need this coal and we're not gonna hold it against you. And I don't think 200 a ton Newcastle is the price that that happens at. <laughs> Interesting. That's exactly. I, I want to explore that angle in a little more detail because you know there's certainly some folks on this call who would say that we're not very far away from that reality. Yeah, but I think the reality is they're happy to. The world's been happy to hand Glencore um, control over some absolutely world class coal assets, especially on the thermal coal side. I mean, in addition to what they had, they now have Hunter Valley. They now have Sarahone. They not only idled Prodeco due to CSR issues in Colombia, they've handed the licenses back to the government. Prodeco did a long time ago. Let me see here. I don't have that number. Perfectly handy, but Prodeco did tens of millions of tons of uh, coal in and of itself. Call me crazy, but that would probably be much appreciated right now. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about Glencore really as, let's talk about the, you know, the stock on an absolute basis um, and why it's attractive. And then let's let's also at this you know let's, secondly let's talk about Glencore versus um, 
you know, versus the pure plays, I, I don't have enough history in the industry to say what the right valuation disparity could be, right? I mean, obviously, Glencore should trade at a higher multiple because there's just so much downside protection there. There's, you know, geographic diversification, there's there's commodity diversification, and then there's this great marketing business, right? So it's not lost on me that that should trade at a premium. But then I also, I just want to explore but at what point is the, at what point is that premium versus some of these pure plays too out of control? Um, and are we there now? So 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 let's go first absolute and then just relative to well, peers. Get, let, that's the best part here. There isn't a premium to the pure plays. I mean, you look at call it Freeport MacMoran on a spot copper free cash flow yield um, for twenty two and twenty three. It's below ten percent. Here, based on Glencore's own guidance, you're looking at a 17, 18% free cash flow yield. I mean, that's the pure plays, and there and there's no iron ore here either to convince you to say, oh, this business is how would I put it? Uh, this like this is gonna have declining commodity prices while copper's only gonna go up. Um the, the pure plays weirdly enough, sometimes trade at a premium. I mean, look, copper's had a ridiculous run and you think about it, and I want to tie this into another point, which is why we're talking about a diversifier, which is the generalists who are first looking at this space are not going to bet their career by making a copper mountain, a HUD Bay Minerals, a Warrior Met Coal, or Arch Resources their first mining position. They're going to start with big and with quality and simple. And look, last couple of years, Freeport has gone absolutely ridiculous. What's it trading at now? 43 bucks. Uh, it's trading at a premium to peers, even to copper pure plays because it trades liquid as water, basically pure copper. It's in an index. And if you want to own it, it's not a lot of brain damage and it's well covered. You're bullish on copper. You can just own Freeport. And so that's kind of what first has to happen. The names, the pure plays and the large caps have to re-rate. So then people say, ah, do I really want to own Freeport with an 8% free cash yield on spot? Let's look a little deeper. Maybe there's a better opportunity here. And then you get to talk about the Lundines, the first Quantums, the HUD Bays, the Copper Mountains, the Ivanhoes. And that's kind of the waterfall here. And so, Glencore is an interesting one to talk about because Anglo, Rio, BHP, all and Vale all have very big iron ore businesses. And we can debate on another spaces what's the right long-term price for iron ore. But here we have a massive base metals business and very high level. You're probably, if you put zero on the coal business, you're probably getting this base metals business for cheaper than a pure play like Freeport. So the absolute opportunity here, and you have the slide up, this is uh, Glencore over time, uh, the enterprise value. Now, we've had Extrata merged in, this company's delevered. This includes a net funding for the debt, not the adjusted net debt, which is part of the marketing business. But the very high level here is the enterprise value of this business is $100 billion roughly right now, and it's peak was 140 billion. 
Um, if you think about where we were versus when we had that peak in 13, 14, you have a much less levered business. You have a much more constructive outlook uh, for copper. The world knows what cobalt is and Glencore has it. The marketing business has done very, is doing exceptionally well and nickel actually is strategic. You don't have Indonesian supply flooding the market. You now have a question of where are we going to get nickel and how are we going to get ESG nickel? So without getting into all the pain of modeling this thing, because let me tell you, that is a journey in and of itself in detail. So I encourage you to just use the slide. Uh, we can always talk through the slight little tweaks you can do, um, as I've done with Cosgrove. But I'd say that in a world where the world understands that mining is critical, you got 40 billion of upside on the EV. That's 40 billion on a $69 billion market cap. So you got 50 to 60% upside if you believe in copper prices, coal prices, base metal prices. And I bring that up because isn't it kind of crazy that coal's at prices we haven't seen in what, over 10 years, minus October and right. September, copper's at nominal all-time highs, and this thing isn't at all-time enterprise value. When it's delevered and a better quality business, that's incredible. So that's the absolute. That's the absolute investment case on the long end. People start to get it. They start to realize it. We get this great rotation. Why shouldn't this be 50, 60% higher on? And then of course we can talk about the short term, the catalysts and kind of what we can think about over the next year. But I think that chart kind of says it all. Chart copper against it, chart Newcastle against it, Coke and coal, cobalt, nickel, zinc. I've hit all the big ones compared against that chart. And you'd go, wow, really? Yeah, and I think you provided the perfect segue, which is this opportunity. It, it feels like it shouldn't be, be here, but it is. Um, so, so how are we unlocking uh, this discount to fair value in the next six to twelve months? So, this might not take. This might take more than twelve, eighteen months to fully unlock. Uh, Rerates don't happen overnight, but I think first we're going to see. Uh, what the distributions are in February and not unreasonable to see not just say 20 cents of dividend, but I think it's very possible that they could do 5 billion of buybacks in 2022, um, pay a two and a half billion dollar dividend, which would be, uh, which would be about 20 cents, uh, and still stay under 10 billion adjusted net debt, which is their, kind of like target unless they stretch it for m a so that's if you don't get a re-rating you're going to get um some real attractive capital allocation there so you're known a bigger piece of this business and frankly i think all the hedge funds will look and say there's a bid under this stock and that's noticeable because with rio 20 percent owned by a chinese entity with a handshake between that entity and the australian government that they won't own more than 20 percent there's a reason Rio Tinto has not bought back stock in the last few years. 
Koala, can you actually, just in case anybody's not familiar with Glencore, can can you give a 30,000 foot view of their capital return policy? Because I do find it very impressive how unbelievably straightforward and well communicated it is. Well, the big guys are great about this because they've all been forced into putting it on a slide. It's a billion of free cash flow from the marketing business and at least 25% of the free cash flow from the industrial business, which is everything but marketing. That's the minimum distribution and they will go above that, but they don't want to go over 10 billion of adjusted net debt for their um, balance sheet, unless it's for a really compelling M&A. And it's worth noting what's unique about adjusted net debt here is basically take the net funding and subtract the readily marketable inventories, RMIs, um, to kind of adjust down. Uh, and that's what they call adjusted net debt. And that's the marketing, something in the marketing business. But it's a pretty, it's a pretty straightforward policy. And it's something to be said about uh, what the market said to the mining industry. Um, just tell us what your framework is so we don't have to guess because your predecessor, we let, your predecessor, we just gave carte blanche to. And uh, well, that's why I'm covering the miners instead of the guy who sat in the seat before me. <laughs> I, I do. I, I find it fascinating that the, you know, that we spend so much airtime on the smaller names talking about, you know, will capital allocation happen? Uh, why haven't management communicated anything yet? But it does feel in this sector that you just have to look up and there's some really good examples of, of, of what investors want. And, 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 and you know, I mean, you're getting the what whole, can make its way. You're getting the coal business basically for free here. Um, anyone, including some of my dearest mentors and friends, whenever we talk about um, some of the smaller cap coal names, you then just sit back and you go, why are we going through this brain damage? <laughs> Let's just don't go yeah, that, for it. That makes talk. Okay, so th thanks. I, I wanted to go down that, that, that path a bit. I know it was a bit of a diversion, but so, so capital return is definitely um, obviously here. Um, what are some of the other things that could go right uh, in the, in the near to intermediate term? So, I think we also have to talk about here um, the FCPA investigation, which was announced in July of 18 um, and is being managed by the board, completely independent of management. Um, these things take years. I think it's very noticeable that it's not really a topic the way it was in 1819 as everyone was trying to figure out what it possibly could be. Having done the work then, that could be a fine, but if it was more than three or $4 billion, I'd be shocked. But I think the market's well aware that there will be a fine at some point for that. Um, but there's, I think, clear as the marketing business has become more um, automated, concentrate, mixing, um, offtakes, just more um, systematic. These aren't cowboy traders anymore. This is very much an institutionalized business uh, that is super focused from my conversations on just not just chasing any business, but getting the right business because um, eyes are on them. So you have a potential ESG t tailwind 
as narratively they clean up they've cleaned up the house from whatever happened 10 or 20 years ago um and then you have this asset divestiture non-core asset divestiture strategy which they allude to in the deck like they're in seven or eight processes there's 15 assets but there's one that i would really like to just flag to everyone because no one's talking about it no one's thinking about it it's not in anyone's models um and that's very rare in a company of this magnitude and size you don't get um in a 70 billion dollar company a unconsolidated partially owned subsidiary like Viterra. And the Canadians on here will say, oh, Viterra, Glencore Agriculture bought that like five or six years ago. Uh, so it's owned by Glencore Ag. Well, Glencore rebranded the business um, over a year ago. And back in 2016, when Glencore was fixing the balance sheet at the bottom of the panic, they brought in two Canadian pension funds into Glencore Agriculture. Um, and it's very interesting, and I shared this with you, Twebs, but um, Viterra now publishes financials, even though they're privately owned. And they put out presentations on their website. Um, and so super high level. I mean, in 2018, there was this whole buy-side gossip that Anchor was going to buy Bungie or do something with Bungie. We saw Ivan hanging out with the CEO somewhere. I mean, the classic terrible game of telephone. Well, this, this is a non-core business to Glencore, clearly. They rebranded it. And those partners are going to eventually want a mark on their investment, whether that's an IPO or to become part of something big, bigger. Um, just very high level. I mean, this is a business that looks to me like could do somewhere between half a billion to in a manic period, one and a half billion of free cash flow before um, working capital changes, which because of the marketing angle is an important distinction. But I look at this and I think, and I look at say Bungie, very high level, like I did this like five lines, but looks to me like this could be a $12 billion business, which 2 billion from that debt, 10 billion, 5 billion to Glencore merge that into Bungie or ADM or strategic or IPO it, you could have, call it seven to, there's a little premium in a deal, 10% uh, value unlock that no one's thinking about right now. Because all that shows up in Glencore as uh, the market is so defensive and just what's the free cash flow? Please don't build anything. Just what's the free cash flow? Give it back to us. Tell us how you're going to allocate all you really see is an equity income uh, slide into EBITDA, and it's buried. It's footnotes in the financial statements. No one's thinking about this. And they're not receiving dividends on any sort of recurring basis, so this would truly be – this would not impact your – losing the business would not impact your free cash flow. Is that there correct? Were very, there were no dividends in 20, is my understanding. And in the past, I don't think they were that material. But even still, I mean, we're talking what? maybe a few hundred million dollars in dividends which on this right. it's it's a case of given we're at with the way ag is going and the way ag's getting attention on mine, mining twitter and financial twitter in general i mean this is something that's out there and it's definitely not a price the bank brokers are, and sell-side analysts are not talking about it they're not pondering it 
and the financials are out there, but no one seems to notice. I only found them two days ago. <laughs> so an 18% free cash flow yield is really a 20% free cash flow yield? Certainly could be if it's finally time to do a deal. And the only thing I'd caution is, I mean, someone joked uh, after Newcrest bid for Predium that Newcrest showed up three years ago and he got a text from a buddy who worked at uh, Bruce Jack. Who is Newcrest? Um, Kirkland and Agnico. They were talking for over a year. Um, and the pandemic slowed these things down. But the reality is, uh, especially after what happened the first half of this decade, big strategic M&A doesn't happen fast in this sector anymore. So no idea on timing here, but it's rebranded. The pension funds have been in since 16. So we're kind of hit the five-year clock. Uh, something's going to happen here. And no one's thinking about it or talking about it in terms of the magnitude of value this could be relative to the market cap of Glencore. And what, what this management team, what is their, what's their general, um, do they generally get cycles right when they buy and sell assets? What's, if, you, if you had to give the 30,000 foot view on, on that topic, will, will they nail the timing? I, I don't think anyone bats a thousand. I think they've done historically a decent job, but look, they've done some incredible purchases, Sarah Hone, Hale Creek and Hunter Valley in coal. But at the same time, first half of 16, when they reported the interim, uh, and I replied, it was first half of 16 or second half of 16, I may have the exact period off. Uh, they had to come out and tell the market that they'd actually hedged um, some of their coal production. Coal had run on them, and they were not going to make nearly as much money in coal as people thought. So they don't bat a 1,000. Maybe they were just battle-shocked from uh, the 15 experience and wanted to lock in cash flows. But... Overall, Glencore management, at least the old management, and I think this culture continues, um, they were real owners of this business. This was, this does have a partnership culture, and I think they care about making money for themselves and the shareholders. So I just think, I think they're very uh, reasonable in how they think about allocating capital. Just a quick one before I ask my, my next question. I did want to let everybody know that that we're happy to take questions from the audience. Just go ahead and, and re request to speak if, if, if you have questions. Um, so, so, and by the way, since you, since you did a, a, a deep dive on Viterra, any, any other, really just in general, management is going through a bit of a simplification process, right? Um, what does that path look like in the next couple of years? Look, Cobar is obviously for sale. That's a copper mine they have in Australia. Um, so that one obviously stands out. Um, I think there's a few uh, coal mines they would probably love to sell um, if they could find the right partner um, that are lower quality coals. Um, but I don't think they're going to sell it for nothing. Um the oil assets uh, in Guinea and Chad. I recall maybe there's something going on there, but uh, nothing I've heard recently. Um, but I don't get the sense those are core. 
I would say in the nickel business, if Coney Ambo um, cannot get turned around, that could be a divestiture probably along the lines of what we saw Vale do with Goro. Um, and then, of course, the funny thing is, like, you look back and you'll be, like, kind of amazed to see, like, they sold, like, a, st- like a tank farm. I mean, and made a f- and got a few hundred million bucks. There's a slide in here where they talk about kind of their equity positions uh, in a couple publicly listed names. Maybe some of these go, but I would say Century's considered strategic. Ian Plus would be strategic. Um. But there's a lot of stuff in this company. I mean, you open up the annual report and you look at the map with all the dots and you go, oh, my God. And it, uh, it reminds me of uh, something that uh, was pointed out to me once, which is they're so diversified that when something goes wrong in one country, if it tightens up the market um, for their commodities, it's amazing how that kind of gets offset by what goes on in the other countries where they produce those same commodities. It's truly a diversified monster. Yeah. I wanted to follow up because you, you, you made a a quick point uh, a few minutes ago where you talked about occasionally not, not hitting the top end of, of, of let's say production guidance and that sort of thing. Um, And and I just wanted to unpack that, that statement a little bit. Is it, is this, is this something where, um, you know, let's just let's just dig in on that in a little more detail. Sure. So you saw in 2015, uh, Glencore took, I believe, from memory, it was half a million tons of zinc off the market uh, from their Australia operations. Um, they also put, uh, I believe it was both Matanda and Katanga Komodo on idle. In the DRC, uh, to uh, because those were high cost uh, copper mines at the time, before the whole whole war leach was complete at Katanga. Um, that also led to it. So that let's use those two as a great example. Um, what did that do? Um, one, tightened up the zinc market. We all recall zinc going to three K plus in sixteen seventeen, um, but also it tightened up copper marginally, but turns out Katanga and Matanda are pretty big cobalt mines. And I think we all remember um, in 2017 and 2018, cobalt really had a run. Um, That's what happens when you take over 10% of global supply offline. That demand now is very much in focus is only an added bonus, but they are, they, they are probably the best at understanding the mix between uh, the impact of reduced supply on price and optimizing where they can. They're exceptional at it. I mean, we saw it, it was a year or two ago, uh, they took, reduced the contractors at some of their Australian coal mines because they looked at the market and said, at these coal prices, it doesn't make sense to chase those expensive marginal last few tons. So let's not do it. That's really helpful. Thank you. Uh, Gab, Gab, you requested to speak and you had a question. Uh, yeah. So, well, first, thanks for doing the spaces. This is really great. Um, but sort of two things I wanted to put forth. So number one, 
Um, I guess in light of laying out the long thesis, like it seems to me that Glencore is also quite a defensive company because the marketing unit actually kind of stabilizes it. Whereas if you're playing a pure play minor, you're going to have probably wilder swings. So we're talking about all this upside, but then at the same time, it seems like it has a pillar that kind of underpins it, which makes it more unique or that they would use sort of the intel they gather from the marketing business to better guide their production business. And so to me, it doesn't even seem like this is a mining company anymore. It doesn't fit in those quotes. It's kind of like what, you know, if you read history, like what Shell became like way back over a hundred years ago, you had Shell Transport and Trading and, you know, Royal Dutch Petroleum. So you have production and trading merging in an integrated way to make something that is sort of turns into, I don't know, an animal that's far bigger than I think a lot of people can comprehend just by thinking about the, the mining lens per se, right? So I don't know if you have any extra thoughts on integration, but then the, the second point I wanted to raise or the second question I want to ask the koala is, yeah, we've hit on a lot of the reasons why you want to be long, but what are, what if anything might be the reasons you go short or what are the, what is the hair that someone is going to raise as very valid to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to temper my expectations. Thanks for the question. So I think on integration, you hit on a great point. Um, I think there's obviously um, value in the market intel and in the the incremental profitability, but it's also interesting to consider that if we're actually going to have a cycle here, um, the guide, the official guidance is 2.2 to 3.2 billion of EBIT. There's 300 of DNA, so call it two and a half to three and a half billion of EBITDA. Um, the marketing business is um, small um, on an EBITDA basis when we're in a proper a bullish mining cycle. Um, but in the downside, it absolutely cushions. Um, and I think we never really touched on this, but there's a few interesting things uh, that they touched on in their capital markets day. There is a shocking number of recycling uh, points that are just sprinkled through the deck, um, including some data on how much um, recycling, recycled metals. And considering how many SPACs and Series A's we've seen for people looking to recycle batteries and create a more circular economy. It looks like Glencore has been spending quite a bit of time on this themselves and they didn't just start in the last few years. They've actually been doing it for a while. Um, and there's also a point they made about with their marketing business. They think that they can help their customers source the green low carbon footprint material. So the marketing business could become far more uh, significant, but that could be a 10 to 20, let's call it 10, 20% growth in the EBITDA of the marketing business. Um, I think that's still, it's, it's still very small in the context of what is on spot going to do 20, 21 billion of EBITDA. Um, but it's still 20, 25, 20%. And in the down cycles, uh, it will, it'll obviously mute the volatility. Um, you bring up a great point about um, this is, this is not, I mean, look, everyone knows that I've been bullish Copper Mountain uh, for the last couple of years. Uh, this is not a company where you kind of get, if you get the cycle right, the spot moves, the free cash flow profile changes dramatically, the balance sheet's totally transformed, and you get multiples 
of equity accretion. Um, this is not that story. Um, so it's that's kind of where, yeah, I wouldn't. I think of, there's probably a few hedge funds who go with the uh, short the quality, long the beta, um, because this won't always move with copper. If you're super bullish copper, this is very much a steady as she goes, slowly re-rating. Uh, you may get good company specific data here and there, um, but this is a bellwether. This isn't a super tight story. And in terms of where you would see pushback here, um, coal prices go down materially. I imagine you're going to see rotations into um, Anglo and into pure plays. Like, I mean, Anofagasta, I've never understood the multiple pre the Chile sell off in the spring, but now it's a little more reasonable. But yeah, people will just go to the pure plays. Uh, they see coal roll over and they think fast money will come out of Glencore. Um, and just in general, like news out of Kazakhstan today, I mean, it's all over Twitter. The uranium bulls are super excited. Kazakh is a big zig producer for Glencore. Um, that could get people concerned. Do you have issues in the Congo um, where they have some of their big copper mines? Um there's going to be little things here and there. Um, do they do an M&A deal to go up to $16 billion, which means you aren't going to get more than the minimum distribution? And that could concern people. Um, those are kind of the things that come to mind um, that could bother people. One of, one of the... Koala, I'd just love to, this is not a single stock question, so forgive me, but, you know, this notion that you have to run out and sell, uh, you know, whichever, whichever commodity equity you own, because spot has gone to, you know, absolute first percentile on a 20 year chart. And, you, you know, I think Seaborn, Seaborn Thermal was probably a good example of this. Uh, you know, and there's this notion that you just you can't own that that peak in the chart and the stocks are predicting and predictably going to get crushed. And by the way, it actually did happen to the to the seaborne thermal exposed stocks. Um, I just love to don't forget don't, don't forget Vale. Don't forget Vale. I sure remember. Vale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just I know that's a broad theme. I just want to hear your thoughts on, on that topic, because you, you kind of have this you've got this battle royale between. But the company's going to make so much cash, even if prices go down 40% versus, hey, you idiot, spot's going down, get out of the way. You, you have to uh, recognize that when it rolls, there's going to be fast money. You think about how much of this volume in these names probably comes from the multi-manager platforms um, who care about making money every week, every month. There's a coal. There, there's a coal thesis. They're buying the liquid coal names. The coal thesis is over. They're selling. They might even go short. Um, that that's that that volatility can be incredibly excruciating. Um, but at the end of the day, um, with a couple exceptions, uh, none of these, uh, most of these mining companies now run with such little leverage that unless it's just some terrible, terrible high-cost asset, um, 
you, you, that, those are kind of opportunities I find because you're actually spot on right. Uh, you you kind of got to sit there and be like, then prices settle down. And I mean, the reality is if, if Newcastle settles out at 120 um, after we get through this winter and spring and all of a sudden the market starts to look and goes, wow, you know, we thought Newcastle 6,000 coal was going to be 70 long-term, but gee, it really hasn't gone there except during the throes of the pandemic. Maybe long-term's 80. It, 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 the volatility is not fun. And if you're in a seat where you're paid on pre-tax returns um, and you don't really care about that stuff, I totally understand why people get the hell out of the way. Um, and those are the marginal buyers and sellers of these stocks more than anyone else because the sector has been so abandoned. See the Glencore Enterprise chart. But looking through, unless you think we're going back to the throes of hell for the spot price, you, you actually, through that volatility, get a learning. And the people who have started to look at these names start to understand them better. So it's not fun in the moment, but it kind of helps the education upgrade across the entire investor base. I'd actually love to hear your thoughts on, you know, if, if you're in that multi-manager long short seat, uh, I was, I, I, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, look, if you cover, uh, Let's say you cover retail, right? You've got this huge pool of, you know, U.S. listed, uh, you know, U.S. listed companies. Uh, you know, you've got subsectors that have ten tickers, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So constructing a long short portfolio is relatively straightforward. Let's say, I'd just love to hear your perspective on what that looks like in metals and mining. With you know, uh, hey, you know this this metal might have two publicly traded companies and this one has one company trading in Australia and one in London and three in the U S and that sort of thing. I'd just love to hear about some of the challenges of, you know, creating that long short book in a, in a multi-manager seat. Drink a gallon of coffee, go party in a Miami <laughs> nightclub, go straight to the beach, drink another gallon of coffee, repeat three times. And, uh, <laughs> And forget everything we just talked about on fundamentals and the long term and just make sure to talk to everyone and understand the narratives, the positions, the next data points. It's it's pure trading. It's pure trading. Uh, and unless you get generous volatility, it's 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 interesting. You want to find tight pairs. You want to find tight catalysts. Um, it's not, oh, Viterra could be a 22 story. It's, are people going to start thinking about Viterra um, because of the Twitter spaces or because of the Goldman note talking about it? Or, well, I've heard about it from two other people. We should buy it because now people are going to price that this might happen over the next month. Um, it's, it's, it's another world. It's another world where it doesn't matter that I mean, that Glencore in a price chart does not matter. No, that that makes that makes total sense, and I've got I've got most of that most of that out of my system. But I I did want to hear that perspective. I could only imagine the uh, 
you know, tr that, that sector must keep you up at all, all hours. <laughs> Creating that book in this sector must just keep you up at all hours of the night. Um, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Gab. Yeah, I wanted to ask another question. I just thought of it, but, uh, you know, Koala, it seems like, you, you know, you get to talk with these companies or talked to these companies very closely. So I, I wanted to get your take on, you know, coming back to Glencore, how do you think about Gary Nagel versus Glazenberg as people and how do they differ? Um, you know, what sort of change of direction possibly do you see, you know, coming from him or are they really just, you know, a guy and his mini me? Never uh, spoken one-on-one -on -one with Gary or met with him in person. So uh, I'm probably not the person uh, to ask, but I would say that those I've spoken to secondhand who have talked with him, uh, the message is that um, Ivan picked someone who was formed by Glencore, um, understands the culture of Glencore, and understands what to do to maximize Glencore. Um, that I think is what's fair to say, and uh, let's see him walk the walk. Is there anything specific that we should know about uh, incentives or management compensation targets, anything that's worthy of discussion? There was a huge uh, hullabaloo about Gary's comp because Ivan, basically because he owns so much of the company, he just, his bonus was his dividends. Um, so there was some pushback on Gary's comp. It's, there's bonuses, there's some shares. Don't hold me to this, but I recall that one of the rules was he can't sell any of his shares until he leaves the company. Um, so he's pretty aligned, but he wasn't part of this like partner committee um, and if you go back and look at when Glencore IPO, they talked about how many billionaires there were going to be post IPO. Um, that hasn't, um, Gary's not <laughs> a billionaire, so he's getting a bonus. He's getting compensated, uh, but I believe they've aligned it so that his Glencore shares are locked up until he leaves. So what have we not discussed? Uh, that, that any points that you wanted to make that we haven't covered yet? Um, I, think we've, I think we've hit on most of it. I, I think it's a case of um, we've chosen the probably the most complicated of the majors. And it's, it's interesting when we talk about the smaller names and the, that maybe institutionally can't be covered by as many, or invested in by many institutions, Here's a name with a valuation that if the cycle's real and you believe in the cycle, I mean, we joke about, um, I don't know who put it out there, but one times EBITDA versus 30 times sales. I mean, 18% free cash flow yield on a basically, basically unlevered company, net unlevered. Um, these are, this is the interesting thing about talking about some of these bigger guys. Um, you don't have to get into the weeds of all the individual assets and all the new and all the nuances. You certainly can, but I think it's important for us to understand that if you're institutional, 
Glencore at 18%. I don't have my volley number perfectly updated, but call volley at 20, 25% or um, Rio BHP in the low teens. Um, Anglo probably somewhere between there and them, them and Glencore. What's the logical question to ask if you're going into mining? Do we go down cap? Do we go down quality? Or do we just buy these valuations that we don't see elsewhere in other sectors? And if we don't make every dollar, that's okay. Because if we're wrong, we're also not going to get our face ripped off. So that, I think that's just nice that, that we're talking sense. about we're talking about big name. It's a complicated one, but you then ask yourself, do we buy the small cap trading at a 12% free cash yield or do we buy Glencore and make 18% and know that if we find out there's a coup, well, they got 149 other operations and they got 20 other countries. I, I, since, since you mentioned it, I do have to give the shout out. That was that was from Buffalo Bill, Wild West, a single stock spaces alumni from episode two. So <laughs> that was uh, that, that was his one one time EBITDA versus 30 times sales. Which one which one do you like? Um, OK, well, this uh, hold on one sec. Billy has a question. Billy, you're live on the air. Hi, thanks. Um, thanks, Koala. That was very interesting, as, as always. Just a quick question. These guys had what, $21 billion of uh, inventory. Is there anything they could do with that in terms of securitization? You know, factor some receivables, do some stuff on the inventory. Obviously, it'd be very accretive, you know, sub four pounds sterling a share. Well, the, most of that, the RMIs on there, that's, that's marketing inventory. So that's secured against uh, debt. So the the adjusted net debt, I think the official number as of the interim was $12 billion. Um, they're going to produce crazy free cash flow per the slide, but you're probably going to see a big inventory and receivables bill just because of commodity prices in the second half. Um, so adjusted net debt's probably, I think my number has it at around 8 or $9 billion because of a big working capital bill. But um, the net funding number is uh, basically what you should look at, the delta between net funding and adjusted net debt. It's always somewhere between around $20 billion. Um, most of that delta and the reason there's a difference between net funding and the adjusted net debt or the optical net debt of just you take debt minus cash is because of the RMIs, um, which are secured against because banks understand that Glencore has price hedged. And it's not just that they have hundreds of thousands of tons of copper just fluctuating every single day. Um, so that inventory is very much optimized, but through debt financing for the trading business. Right. And is the trading business 100% consolidated or is it equity accounting at 50% associate line? The, uh, for the ag for Viterra? Yeah. Oh, Viterra is unconsolidated. It's equity accounted through equity income. I think if you go look, it's like, I think in the, I think I looked, when I looked at the interims, it was like, they brought in like 200 million, I want to say, yeah, in the uh, first half. Yeah, 196 yeah. in front of me. And it was so like the, 55, 55 the interim before. So yeah, they only are bringing in the net income there. That's not uh, attributable, not uh, the EBITDA attributable. 
Right, but the working capital on Viterra's balance sheet, is that um, proportionally consolidated or what are they doing there or is they just, uh, just... My understanding is that's not on... My understanding is that Viterra's balance sheet is not part of Glencore's balance sheet. It's just uh, equity income comes into the income statement. Right, but you were speculating earlier that they could maybe spin out there. They could get rid of 50% of that for what, 5 billion, did you say potentially? 10 times for yeah. or something? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's very possible that this thing goes for... Uh, 12 billion, 2 billion of net debt uh, on Viterra per their presentation and slides uh, at, at the interim. So looking at Bungie, and I, I did a very simplified analysis. I could be off by a few billion here, but uh, the reality is it looks to me like there's, I'll call it a 7% unlock there that no one's thinking about. And since we talked about the Fast Money uh, crew earlier and the Diversifieds, a 7% unlock would be a great spread on top of, if you're bullish, the Glencore commodity basket versus, say, the peers. And, and can they play around with the capital structure more? I mean, obviously, the industry is notorious for getting it wrong at top and bottom of cycles. But, um, you know, this, this business could carry a bit more debt, couldn't it? I, I, I absolutely agree. Um, what's the trough EBITDA on this business? $8 billion from, call it fifteen sixteen roughly? Um, I think the reality is, um, everyone was worried about the marketing business, but they were able to roll all their facilities um, uh, back then. I think if you manage the maturity ladder appropriately so that you only have, call it $2 billion, maturing every given year and you go long dated on the debt, why can't you go to $20 billion? Uh, especially when you consider that um, you have working capital um, cash in a downturn as commodity prices go lower, which reduces the funding of the marketing business. I, I just think in general that as long as you, yeah, as long as you manage the maturities uh, ladder so you don't have a wall, uh, yeah, I, I think 10 billion is a ridiculously low number. But as I think Glencore would say with a straight face while smiling internally, you guys told us we had too much leverage you told us not to do anything crazy. So we're doing what you asked as our shareholders. And well, all of our peers are doing that as well. Uh, and yeah. we're just seeing things tighten up. I mean, their IPO famously signaled the top of the last cycle. But coming back to this question, Tweb's question about KPIs and stuff, and forgive yeah. me for not having read the financials in detail. If they all want to be even bigger billionaires, um, what are they going to do in terms of playing games with capital structure, do you think, or the shape of the business? I mean, no, you kind of I think they'll be buying back stock. Right. They're in no rush. Aren't they? I think they will be. No, I think they will be buying back stock while doing a distribution that appeases those that want dividends. Um, and incrementally, um, I think they're going to go look for. Um, I think that, and this is the thing that's going to wake up and it's not going to be taken well, but I have to think that after they get some re-rating, they're going to think very strategically about potential M&A, but I don't expect them to make any big moves um, until we kind of have FCPA sorted out. I think they're happy. Um, just run the business. Um, the right opportunity comes uh, where they can create a lot of value 
I don't think they'll hesitate to pull the trigger. Uh, but in the meantime, look, I mean, very simply, if they can buy back 5% of the of the shares outstanding every single year while paying a distribution and keeping a, a low levered balance sheet to maintain some optionality, I mean, it's, a, it's not a crazy world where in five to 10 years, if we have a, if we have a proper cycle, uh, people are calling these big mining houses compounders. <laughs> well, you know, what goes around comes around. I mean, what about, I know you talked about this, but would spinning out coal re-rate the, the, the rump, the residue, if you like, the copper and zinc and nickel? Have they, has that, have they had that Conceptually, discussion yes. do you think? I think they have for if their shareholders demand it. Every, maybe not every year, but every couple of years. Um, but you look at it, I think you spin out coal and you'd probably send the energy marketing business with it to really become pure. Um, that thing trades to nothing. Maybe it gathers some sponsorship, but I, I, I just don't see really how that's going to... We all love to laugh about that idea. Him and Tor, uh, here's 12% of Glencore, give us the coal business. But I think uh, my understanding is Ivan's very happy uh, working on his, um, his uh, athletic clothing line. Something about a much higher multiple well, versus waiting for Glencore to re-rate to its proper multiple. Okay. Well, look, thanks very much. I'll, I've beaten this one to death, so I'll, uh, I'll stand aside now. Cheers. Thanks, Billy. Go ahead, Connor. Hi, guys, and uh, thanks for facilitating the call here. It's a really interesting call. Really, uh, just a small point I just was going to add, just on that, that point that... Uh, Billy had raised with Koala on Viterra. So, yeah, so Viterra is accounted for uh, under IFRS as a as a joint venture equity investment. So, Koala is exactly right in that the, the results there are buried right within the I think it's the marketing line in, in the accounts. But just but just to give some color on on the Viterra um, segment itself and 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 the value unlock, which and I, and I totally agree. I think there's significant value to be unlocked. So Viterra was acquired uh, for about. 10 times EBITDA back in 2012 at about a $7 billion EV um, and subsequently merged with Glencore's existing ag business at the time. And the LTM EBITDA on that ag business today is about 1.6, 1.7 billion. And I think if you working back from that, applying a 10 to 11 times multiple on that, I think the total value of that business is somewhere probably between 11 or 12 billion. And you take roughly 50% of that for Glencore's value. So, you know, you're at kind of in the five or six billion type equity value versus uh, the carrying value in Glencore's accounts for that joint venture interest is about 3.3 billion. So you've got a 2 billion differential in terms of value unlock there. So that's just my rough numbers based on some digging. I've been looking at some of the, the ag businesses, including Viterra. Uh, and that, that was just my observation or my, my addition to, to that point that Billy had raised. It's nice to hear someone validate my uh, number that I came up with after 10 minutes of stare after I found the financial statements. So thank you. Always nice to have validation. Um, 
Yeah, look, I think that's, uh, to be honest, I did not know what it was held for on the books. Um, but I think that what's so interesting here about this is I can't think of that many times you have something where uh, we could wake up to a deal here. And I think it's not just at the multi-managers, but I think across the board, people have said, ah, whatever, don't think about it. It's buried no dividends. It's not in anyone's simple free cash flow analysis. And I cannot stress this enough that one slide is what the company will point you to if you try to build a model. Um, if you want to go through the pain and suffering of going segment by subsegment, Koalasi, Antonina, Copper Australia, Copper Africa, Ka Zinc, Australian nickel, like I can go on and on. I've done it twice, maybe three times actually. I might have blacked out the third time, uh, but it, it's not pleasant. So um, I think in general, I don't think there's people who have really thought through this ag business and that without having a cycle, there's real cash flow here. And oh my God, you pair this in with something else. There's we wake up to a deal, everyone's gonna go, oh my God, that wasn't in my numbers, that's in no one's numbers. Um, this thing's up five, six percent on the day. Just yeah, I think it just and you don't see that in you you don't see that in seventy billion dollar companies. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just uh, I think my, my view as well is that, that makes complete sense around, you know, that, that the clock is ticking on the five year term with the two pension funds like Viterra is one of seven global ag businesses. It's, you know, it's part of a it's the smallest of the seven. Uh, you know, Glencore bought it back in 2012. They took a run at Bungie in 2017. That didn't happen. Um, you know, and I remember Ivan at the time on Bloomberg talking about, you know, building their building out the rag business and, and, you know, they had big plans for that. That hasn't really panned out. Uh, and I think, you know, if, if um, you know, wh what are they left to do with Viterra now? I, I, I think it looks like, uh, you know, that they're going to sell that or monetize it. And, and you know, you know, ADM, Bungie, um, maybe, maybe, you know, probably not Cargo just because of the probably antitrust issues there. But someone else is going to pay a pretty strong value for that, I would think, um, you know, given that, you know, it, it's a pretty unique asset, um, you know, it's a, you know, certainly a very strategic asset um, and you've got, you know, a global grain oligopoly really. So, um, you know, they bought it for 10 times. They probably, you know, roughly maybe, maybe not quite double the size of it, but um, certainly it's a very marketable asset. I would think particularly, you know, we had the fertilizer, uh, run last year you know that's kind of feeding into you know um ag stocks and you know crops but possibly this year as, as a major theme so um i think it, it could be it could be a very interesting asset um that they could monetize this year uh, look i think most people would be thrilled if we woke up to something and glencore said yeah we're going to take the shares from this deal uh, our partners are thrilled with the returns on their investment and they're going to hold their shares. We're going to take our shares and we will distribute them to our shareholders. I think everyone would be absolutely thrilled with that outcome. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, I mean, also, you got to think about um, sitting there, the fact that they sold down half that business to kind of 
fix the balance sheet to the new market standard in 16. Um, I think that that has to be for them a daily reminder that if they lever up and they get it wrong, uh, that leads to selling things that you really don't want to sell. And I think that's an attitude that has permeated across the whole industry. I don't think Freeport, I think Freeport wishes they still had Tenki Fungarumi. Um, like, I, I think you just have to think through that level that no one wants to be the person that has to sell a crown jewel or a really good asset um, in the bottom of the cycle. And that attitude is still permeated and seared 10 layers down all of these organizations. So either they have to grow it, but eventually they have to monetize it given their minority partners. No better time than now, I would say. Bungie's at all time. Bungie's at 52 week highs. So Koala, I, I just got one in the DM, which we've, I don't think we've really gone deep on. Uh, it's just if you could give your really quick high level supply demand outlook for both copper and nickel. Copper, super high level. You're going to have production growth in 22. So uh, people much smarter than me on copper have the most balanced 450, four bucks, who knows? And yet it's here. Um, I think the thing I've noted, and I want to go back into my detailed notes at some point on this, but um, first quarter, first half of 22 isn't when I, from memory, recall the supply growth. Uh, uh, I mean, Kukula phase two will commission in March. Memory serves me correct. We'll ramp up. Uh, Uh, it's a backdated, um, it's a back 324, it gets, it's going to be much less supply growth. The cupboard, as Ivan would say, the cupboard's bare, but uh, I always roll my eyes internally when I talk about this, because there's that cliche, um, we're going to have growth for the next three years, and then copper's going to go off a cliff. It's that infamous Wood McKenzie chart, which if you pulled it up in 2011, 2014, 2017, it always looks like that. Um, and the industry's found a way. Um, I think the current bear argument is that we're going to see an increase in scrap. Um, but at the same time, I don't see how you can have increases in scrap when, and then also at the same time, see copper going down 25, 30%, as some brokers have called. Uh, pulling scrap out is tends to be more of a bull market uh, and higher price. Uh, that tends to be how markets work. You incentivize supply through higher prices, not lower prices. Um, forgive the facetiousness. But so that's copper. I, I think there's a really structural long-term story there um, because you just don't really see, I mean, what does it tell you that Glencore has El Pachon on that growth slide? While Glencore also says, we are not going to build major greenfields. That's called the, anyone want to do this? Give us a call. 
Um, there just aren't, we haven't had big discoveries. There haven't been tier one discoveries. So copper, it's really hard to be bearish long-term. Um, and then on nickel, more supply out of Indonesia, but then what? I, I caution with nickel because the long-term everyone focuses on batteries and EVs, but in the near term, it's about stainless steel um, in terms of what drives the price. But look, I see no reason that you are going to see the long-term bullish cases for those metals tear to shreds. And that really is what's going to support these multiples on these companies, given the long mine lives and the very un- and the and the low levered balance sheets. If these things were five or six times levered, the next year or two would be what really mattered. Um, that's not the case after what they've done over the last five or six years. All right. Well, I think uh, I don't know about you, Koala, but an hour and a half is a is a pretty pretty solid amount of time on on a stock um any any final thoughts before we break no this was fun i hope everyone enjoyed the uh the voice modifier to begin with it made me sound like a bond villain i imagine (laughs) definitely darth vader was the consistent feedback (laughs) um but listen you've been really generous with your time thank you so much for doing this uh you know, as a generalist trying to figure out this crazy sector, I can just say myself, your, you know, your account has been enormously helpful. So, so thank you for sharing. And, uh, and uh, look, it feels like there's a real zeitgeist at this moment of, uh, of this whole cyclical trade, you know, more, more so than just what we're specifically talking about today. So who knows, we might even look back at this timing and say, wow, they were pretty, they were pretty brilliant to uh, do a deep dive on, on Glencore. On January fifth of twenty twenty two. So, so thanks again. Well, this has been really. I'll just caution you. I got invited into a Discord of generalists at the beginning of August, and my first comment was, "The fact that I'm here is not a good sign." And then I watched Iron Ore, <laughs> and then I watched Iron Ore do the slide for life. So, maybe everyone <laughs> take a cold shower and revisit this in uh, two to three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> noted noted thank you so much and uh and looking forward to uh you know continuing to interact with you i appreciate it this is fun this was fun glad we did it okay bye everybody <laughs>